and welcome to a flash fiction episode of Fair Books Podcast with me, Daisy Ray. And me, April Berry. And as you can see, I'm still suffering from the effects of illness on the road to recovery now. But although I do sound like I'm on a sex line, I can assure you it's a podcast. <laughs> I'm so glad you cleared that up. Thank you very much. Although there could be good money in it if you're any good at your job. Swiftly moving on then. Mind you, having said that, we do have, oh, we God. do write some we do write some good stories for the podcast, don't we? I could turn my imagination to that if you know if I lost the day job. Well, we can always put some prompts in further down the line for you no, if you're you so all right. wish. No confessions of? No, absolutely none. What confessions of a podcaster? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. So on this episode, then, we are on Flash Fiction, and this is based on an image that has been on our social media. And the image was of this cutest child with this pull-along elephant standing in front of a massive door that had a sign emblazoned across the top of it. No elephants in this establishment. I can't remember exactly what it said, but it didn't allow elephants. That much I know. (laughs) That's good. So who's written stories for us then this week? So we've got three stories. We're going to have a story called Moving Out that April wrote. Second up, we've got Rules Are Rules, which was written by Sandy Biddles, which is a real quirky one. Really looking forward to your hearing that one and to what your opinions of it might be. And last but not least, we've got a story by Jane Love that's called The Last House in the Village. But I think Daisy's got some news for you as well from a recent event that we did. Oh, yes. Before we read you today's stories, let's tell you a little bit about Monday evening just gone. We had our first ever live and in-person Bear Books gig where we went to Copper Cogs in Long Eaton and we talked about all things podcasting. We talked about flash fiction and the whole room were... Brilliant. They came out and supported us. They talked to us. A lot of them wrote flash fiction stories for us on the night based on photographs that were supplied by local photographers, Chris Davies and Tony Fisher. And at some point in the not too distant future, what we will do is April and I will pick our favourites of the stories from the night and we will have a bit of a bonus episode and celebrate all the good stuff that came out of our evening out. I'm glad everybody put up with the fact that my voice is not brilliant at the moment, but I had a thoroughly, thoroughly good night. I met some fabulous people. Yeah, it was just great. I really, really enjoyed Monday night, um, yeah. even though my voice isn't brilliant. To save my voice, do you think we should have the first story? Yeah, let's kick off then. Today's first story comes from April. This is entitled Moving Out. Jeremy looked around at the chaos in the living room and had no idea where to start. He knew where it had all started, and that was with a blind date his best friend had set him up on. He opened a random drawer, pulling out the contents, scattering them all over the floor in an attempt to make sense of them, as he tried to make sense of his recent decisions. He stood up and scratched his head. I still don't know where to start, he thought. With a cuppa and a biscuit, Jeremy lowered himself onto the only chair in the room, thinking, I'll probably never get to sit on this chair again. He found himself getting lost in the past, 
back to a time when he was single and had agreed to go on that blind date in the first place. He'd fallen in love that night. To Jeremy, she was the most beautiful girl he had ever set eyes on, and he must admit that not all his thoughts were pure that night by any means. He reminisced about their first kiss, and couldn't help but also think about their first blissful night together. His mind floated through memories of the holidays they'd taken together. Initially, it was just long weekends in the UK. They explored places Jeremy had never even heard of. Liz was the one with the adventurous soul, and it was as contagious as she was herself. She also liked a bit of an adrenaline rush, in ways Jeremy had never even considered. In fact, some of the things they got up to made him still blush now. While this isn't getting the living room sorted, he thought to himself, dragging himself back to the task at hand. Jeremy went to the kitchen to gather a couple of boxes, and as haphazardly as things were stored in the drawers, he bunged them into the boxes in the same way. Jeremy procrastinated for hours that evening, not really achieving much, but getting more and more stressed as the evening went on. He went to bed, exhausted. However, like all the rest of the nights over the last week, he didn't sleep well, tossing and turning until dawn, when he gave it up as a bad job and got up. Making his way into the kitchen, he could see the piles of empty boxes, boxes waiting to be filled with his belongings. Grabbing his wallet from the side of the kettle, Jeremy left the house and all the confusion behind him for the day and headed to work. Not that he could concentrate on work, He spent half the time dreading going home to pack up his little house and the other half daydreaming of Liz. They had graduated into spending every waking moment they could together. Holidays abroad, trips to the theatre. Liz loved musicals. They weren't Jeremy's thing, but he was happy when Liz was happy. It didn't take long until things became really serious with Liz and he started spending all of his time at her flat, reluctant to leave her. Jeremy let his brother stay at his house. It seemed daft to just leave it empty. Then Jeremy had made a bold statement one day that changed the course of their relationship. It still made Jeremy sweat to think of it now. Leaving the office, Jeremy knew he couldn't face any more of those boxes, emptying drawers, emptying cupboards. So he put in a desperate call to his mum. By the time Jeremy got home, his mum was waiting on the doorstep. He put his key in the door and ushered his mum in before him. She walked into the living room, looked around and with an enormous sigh turned to Jeremy and said, You're not good with the elephant in the room, are you? This shouldn't be allowed, grinned Jeremy, full of relief that he no longer had to face this dreaded task alone. But if you don't get a move on with this packing, you'll still be doing it whilst Liz is waiting at the altar for you. Jeremy sounded like he either had mother issues or a bit of cold feet going on there, not wanting to leave all of his stuff behind as much as he was in love with Liz. That story came out of of a quick conversation that I had on Monday night, strangely enough. And it was, we were talking about packing rooms up. And one of the people that were there said to me, yeah, it's all about the elephant in the room though, isn't it? You can't eat an old elephant. I don't think anyone could eat a whole elephant. So the story came from that about breaking a job down and breaking something down into manageable bite-sized chunks. 
So it was a bit businessified, but I just turned into flash fiction. I was quite excited for Jeremy's new future. Well, I think his brother will be quite happy if he's going to gain Jeremy's old home to himself. What I'd like to know is what our listeners think of these flash fiction stories. I think it would be excellent if all of you, every single one of you, popped onto our Twitter, which is at BayBooksPod1. And let us know what you think of the stories. Would you do it any different? Love to hear your thoughts. This second story comes from Sandy Biddles and is entitled Rules or Rules. Skipping ahead of her nanny, pulling Nellie, then seeing the sign, Cynthia hesitated at the looming entrance to the public baths. She instinctively knew that signs were important, but as she could not yet read very well, reached forward anyway and tapped on the door. After a brief hiatus, she could hear rattles and creaks on the other side. The child squealed in surprise as a panel slid open to reveal a face as grey and wrinkled as an old, unironed bedsheet. As its gaze slid from Cynthia to her silent, obedient companion, the visage revealed that, due to regulations, elephants must use their own pool via the rear entrance. Can you see the sign? Strictly no elephants allowed in here. They are not like us, you know. Rules are rules. What had promised to be a wonderful day now seemed confused and uncertain to the little girl. As her nanny, out of breath, rejoined her granddaughter outside the imposing facade of the town's municipal baths, the wooden panel slammed shut. Then the doors opened wide to display the tall, gaunt owner of the face, wearing an inscrutable expression, a scarlet uniform adorned with gold stripes and epaulets, and a peaked cap with a prominent badge, B.G. Hunter, proprietor. Welcome to Pretoria Street Baths, he said with a grand flourish, causing the visitors to step backwards for safety. My assistant will show the animal where to go. Hearing a click of the proprietor's fingers and a scuffle behind them, the astonished child and her nanny saw Nellie disappear around the corner of the building. As Nanny opened her mouth to speak, Cynthia squeezed her hand and dispelled her words. Elephants have their own pool because they're different and it's the rules. I think they have games and slides and balloons. Once inside, the old building echoed with indeterminate sounds. A marble floor lay cold under their feet and green glazed tiles lined the walls. Way above them floated a domed skylight and through it the casts of beams and shadows across pictures and trophies representing the building's past and present. Mr Hunter dispensed their tickets and led the pair towards the female changing rooms and pool before returning to his duties whilst whistling softly to himself and stepping in time to the tune. In the shallow end, Cynthia listened to the sounds emanating from the other side of the wall and said longingly, I really wanted Nellie to see me learning to swim, but it sounds like they're having fun in the elephant pool. Remember to kick your feet, responded Nanny. Yes, it's a shame they can't all join in. At the end of their allotted session, Cynthia dried and changed quickly. After racing back to the foyer, she waited impatiently until her nanny joined her. 
the proprietor was standing to attention near the entrance doors, his gimlet eyes now fixed on the girl. As they approached, he stretched out a bony hand which held a note towards her and coldly said, Nellie asked me to give you this, young lady. What does it say, Nanny? Are we playing a game? Her grandmother's face filled with anxiety as she read, Dear Cynthia, I've gone back to the circus. Love you. Bye. Your best ever friend, Nellie. Kiss. But she came from Hamley's nanny, exclaimed the little girl, her face crumbling into hot tears. Her day suddenly became even more strangely confusing. Her nanny bent and wrapped her in soothing arms. Never mind, my precious. We'll get you another elephant. As she straightened, the elderly lady became acutely aware of a newly installed trophy above their heads. Unlike the others, they had freely acquired this one, ready-stuffed. Despite the desperate thumping in her chest and her legs trying to give way, she guided her charge gently, yet firmly, past B.G. Hunter, through the heavy wooden doors and outside into relative safety. Nellie now stared glassy-eyed and helpless, at her friend's departure, a trophy of the building's murky present, already cast in motes of shadow. Rules are rules. We absolutely loved the quirky vibe of this. From BG Hunter, like Big Game Hunter, and the fact that poor little Nelly was a little stuffed elephant from Hamley's. <laughs> And I still felt sorry for the elephant, even though it wasn't even actually an elephant. It was like innocence wrapped up in macabre. It was a proper quirky piece. Really enjoyed it. I wanted to cry at the end when Nelly was looking longingly at her, her owner. Oh, you're one of those people that believes your toys comes to life when you go to sleep at night. You know, the only film I've ever cried at was The 101 Dalmatians, the cartoon version. You soft bugger. <laughs> Now that we've had confessions of our podcaster, I think we'll move on to story number three, which is The Last House in the Village. It was written by Jane Love, and we'll see you after this story. The last house in our village was old and spooky. I don't recall ever seeing the old man who lived there myself. We were told never to knock on his door or play around his garden. Old Mr Jones doesn't like people, especially kids, so if you do go near, you'll be in a lot of trouble, our parents told us. There were lots of stories, rumours about him, none good. He'd killed someone, he was a hitman, he was a prisoner of war in Japan, oh, and he was on release from a mental institution. His sister called once a week with his clean washing and shopping, but she never stopped to chat either. He wanted to be left alone and the grown-ups made sure we did just that. Then one day, around Easter of 67, a child went missing. A girl, Jill. She was a little older than me. She was from the largest family in the village, the Millers. They had 14 children. Jill was not the brightest of the family, but she was nice, funny, and a classic tomboy just like me. The game we played the day she went missing was Dare You?, The boys always won because they would choose horrible days. 
Her younger brother Ronnie said, I dare you to go to the last house in the village and knock on the door, but you best run. She stuck her tongue out and ran off. Just then, I could hear my name being called. As I ran home, I shouted, See ya! And the other kids started getting called in too. I had a wash, got ready for bed, and my mum bought me my supper, and then I cleaned my teeth and got off to bed. A little while later, I heard a knock on the back door. My family was in the front room watching TV. They wouldn't have heard it, so I got out of bed and went to the landing and shouted down. My parents came out and sent me back to bed, then went to answer the back door. I heard them talking, but they must have moved into the kitchen because I couldn't hear what they were saying. Next thing, I hear my name being shouted from the bottom of the stairs. I got up and went downstairs trying to think about what I'd done this time. My mum asked, do you know where Jill went? I replied, no. Then Mrs Miller asked, were you playing with her tonight? Yes, we were all playing together, I said. I think Robbie dared her to do something, but then I got called home so I don't know for sure. Mrs Miller smiled a half smile, said thank you, and they sent me back to bed. My dad grabbed his coat and walked Mrs Miller home, told her husband and he shouted Robbie to come downstairs. He added the word now so any of the kids that were awake would get Robbie up. Robbie wiped the sleep from his eyes and asked, What did I do? His dad said, What did you dare your sister to do? We know you sent her on a dare, so don't lie to me, boy. Robbie knew from the sternness in his voice that this was no time for messing about. He looked at the floor and said in a subdued voice, I dared her to knock on the door of the last house in the village. His dad nodded and said, Get to bed, I'll deal with thee later. Robbie didn't wait, he was up those stairs quicker than Usain Bolt. The police arrived just in time to stop the men of the village storming up to Mr Jones's house. They took all the details and went to the old man's house themselves. The officers knocked on the door. No answer. They peered through the kitchen window. On the table there was a bowl with what looked like blood-soaked cotton wool inside it. They banged on the door this time and it opened. It was just on the latch. Police! they shouted. They moved slowly to the front room to find a girl asleep on the sofa and the old man asleep in a chair. The police called for the paramedics who were waiting outside and woke the old man up. They checked the girl over. She had a large lump on her head and her knees had been bleeding, but she was okay. The police asked the man what had gone on, but he was silent, said nothing. They put him under arrest, took him to the police station and still Mr Jones refused to speak. However, when offered a phone call, he wrote down a number. The duty officer called the number and got through to his sister. She told them her brother couldn't speak. His larynx was crushed when he'd been beaten by a Japanese guard with a rifle butt in a prison camp during World War II. He was a decorated World War II veteran. They were to give him paper and pen so he could communicate with them. They passed him a pad and he wrote about how the little girl had knocked on his door and fell over in a rush to get away. He picked her up, brought her in, and she passed out. He didn't know where she lived, just that she was a village kid. He explained he couldn't call anyone, so he tended to her cuts and covered her up and waited. He must have fallen asleep too. The police were happy no crime had been committed and released Mr Jones, even drove him home. They also visited the Millers to clear things up.
Next day, Jill asked her mum if she could buy a thank you card for Mr Jones. Of course you can, and I'll come with you and take him some of these buns I've just made when you deliver it. When Mr Jones died about ten years later, he was no longer the scary old man in the spooky house at the end of the village. He was a valued member of the community. Once people knew how to communicate with him... I do like the way that Jane writes a story because she's got that kind of down-to-earth way of telling a story. I don't really want to sound divided, but it's a right northern sort of... I can see it, something that happened in the 60s. I suppose because I lived it in the 60s. I mean, you don't want to be going knocking on that door. You don't know what's going to happen if you do. Yeah. But then I also like the way that she wove into the story how much she was misunderstood and what happened in years to come. I think it's a little bit of a lesson in us trying not to be quite so judgmental. Yeah, I agree with you. And that we should look a little bit deeper at people. So there is actually a moral to that story that Jane's told. Yeah, and I think you should be quite chuffed actually with the fact that you're reading Northern into it. That would have made her day. So if you're listening, Jane, yay. Yes, Jane, I like keep keep up the Northern So at the end of this month, on the 30th, we go back to our indie book reviews and we are reviewing To My Grave, which is written by Ben Andrews. So let me tell you a little bit about the book. I'll read you the blurb that is on Amazon. How far would you go to protect your family? Neil Monroe has gone to his grave harbouring a secret he thought was now lost to the world. But an awful act has ripple effects through three generations, each family member keeping a secret of their own. Jake is struggling to come to terms about his childhood. His sister Jane opens up a can of worms when she investigates a murder that rocked the small village of Foxton and finds links to her own family's history. Their own father is growing more distant and their mother is blind to who her family really are. This is a dark and disturbing story about how silence in a family can have deadly effects for years to come. Can Jane keep her family secrets safe and will Jake ever be able to open up about his past? Sounds right on my street, that does. Yeah, it sounds really interesting that. Have you started reading it yet? No, but I'm looking forward to it now. I've read that. Yeah, I am too. So we'll join you all next time then. Till then, take care, goodbye. Thank you for joining us. Now you've had a listen, why not pop over and join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Or if you want to send in your stories, email us at submissions at bearbooks.co.uk.